As our music director, Ashley, takes a well-deserved week off, I want to say a special thank you to Carol Jewell, who is very ably standing in for her on the piano. So a big thank you for that, yeah. Would you pray with me? God of grace, let the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O God, our strength and our redeemer. Amen. As I said, as we opened worship this morning, Merry Christmas to you all. It is still Christmas in the church calendar. Christmas is a season, of course, a season of 12 days, which begins on December 25th and runs through January 5th, which is the day before Epiphany. So we are in the Christmas season. In the season of Advent, we hear many prophecies. We hear ancient prophecies from the Hebrew scriptures, prophets like Isaiah, forecasting their vision that a Messiah would come to the Jewish people. The prophecies paint pictures of what that Messiah might be like, what difference he might make. We also hear a different kind of prophecy in the season of Advent. We read New Testament writings that predict the second coming of the Christ and paint pictures of what that might look like. Then Jesus is born, and the stories of his birth suggest that the prophecies have been fulfilled. But the prophecies don't end there, as we see in our reading from Luke's gospel this morning. This reading from Luke's gospel falls into a rare category of gospel stories. In all the gospels, we hear hardly anything about Jesus in between his birth and then adulthood. Most of these few stories we do have are from Jesus' infancy or very early childhood, and one of those stories is what we heard this morning. And we find that in this story, we have not left the prophecies of Advent behind. Instead, the prophecies of what Jesus' life will hold or what Jesus' life will mean continue at his dedication at the temple. Mary and Joseph take Jesus to the temple. They are devout Jews, and the scripture tells us they are following the prescribed religious rituals for their new baby. When they arrive at the temple, they encounter two elders, an old man named Simeon and an old woman named Anna. Both Simeon and Anna have something to say about Jesus. This gospel story is one of many that show people who recognize Jesus for who he is. And one thing this story makes clear is that it is God's guidance that helps people recognize Jesus for who he is or helps people correctly understand Jesus. We spend the season of Advent focused on waiting, the experience of waiting for the Christ to be born in Bethlehem long ago or in our lives today. And today's reading from Luke tells us that Simeon has been waiting and that Jesus' arrival at the temple on that day marks the end of what Simeon has been waiting for. We don't know how long Simeon has been waiting, but we know that God made a promise to Simeon that Simeon would not die until he had seen the Messiah. It was God, the Holy Spirit, 
that led Simeon to the temple at that time when Jesus was being presented. And it was the spirit that revealed who Jesus was to Simeon. And here is what, where the prophecy continues. The prophecies that we heard so much about in Advent, which we might have thought we would be done with come Christmas. Simeon says, This boy is destined for the falling and the rising of many in Israel, and to be a sign that will be opposed. Then Simeon adds a note just to Mary, and a sword will pierce your own soul too. Simeon prophesies Jesus' destiny and predicts Mary's grief. Simeon is identified only as a particularly devout man. Anna, on the other hand, is actually called a prophet. She too recognizes Jesus for who he is. She tells the people about him, though the scripture doesn't actually tell us what she says. In describing Simeon, the scripture says that he was looking forward to the restoration of Israel. In describing the people Anna was talking to when she talks about Jesus, it calls them all who were looking for the redemption of Jerusalem. This language helps us understand a bit about what the Jewish community at that time might have been looking for in a Messiah, one who would restore the strength and security of Israel, one who would bring an end to the political vulnerability of Israel, its domination by surrounding empires. Many were looking for and hoping for a Messiah who would make a tangible difference in the world, even a political difference. For those of us who call Jesus the Christ, which means the Messiah, this begs the question of what difference we think Jesus Christ makes in the world. But today I'm wondering if maybe that question is a little bit too big. I wonder if that question is a little bigger than what we can really wrap our minds around. I wonder about starting with the question of what difference Jesus Christ makes in our lives. Because if we can't say for ourselves what difference Jesus makes, I don't think we are in a good position to say anything about what difference Jesus Christ makes beyond our own lives. I'm struck by this line from Luke's gospel, this part of Simeon's prophecy for what Jesus' life would mean. This child is destined for the falling and the rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be opposed. So if we take a moment to step away from the big picture of what difference Christ might make in the world and instead ask, what difference Christ makes in our lives, I wonder, what in you or what in me might fall or might rise in response to the presence of Christ in my life? Where might Christ's nudges awaken some opposition in me? Methodists use this phrase that captures a taste of John Wesley's thoughts about the life of faith. We are all going on to perfection. This means that as we try to put our faith into practice, we are a work in progress, each one of us. 
We are not perfect. But we also have a picture of what it looks like to be faithful to God's claim upon our lives. A picture revealed most clearly in Jesus Christ. We understand ourselves to be called to lives of love and service and justice. We talk often in this church about what it means to be a Christian, what it looks like to put faith into practice or to walk our talk. So I'm not going to spend a lot of time on that now, though it's a theme we return to over and over and over again. For now, I simply want to invite you to consider your own journey on that road to perfection, your own efforts to put your faith into practice. Another significant ingredient of the Methodist movement was the practice of self-examination. Wesley encouraged early Methodists to look at their lives, their practices and their thoughts, and do some real soul-searching about how their lives reflected the faith they might profess. So in this vein, I wonder, just as Jesus was destined for the falling and the rising of many in Israel, what in you might fall or might rise in response to the presence of Christ in your life? Are there old habits or beliefs or attachments that need to fall away in order for you to more fully live your faith? Are there hopes and commitments and incomplete efforts that need to rise in you, that need to be more fully explored and expressed in order for you to more fully live your faith? And just as Jesus was a sign that was opposed by some in his time, do you see anything in yourself in opposition to the hope Christ offers? Do you see perhaps resistance in yourself that might get in the way of the full blossoming of your faith? Jesus Christ makes a difference in the world. That is what the prophecies foretold, and I believe it to be true. But before we can begin to grasp a picture that big, we need to be able to name the difference Jesus Christ makes in our lives. So in this season, I invite you to turn your attention to this question. As we celebrate the birth of this Christ child, the arrival of Christ in our world, I invite you to consider what difference does Jesus Christ make in your life? Amen.